all of the awards I've talked about, every one of those awards relied on a trail plan that was submitted with the grant application. Without those trail plans, we wouldn't be seeing that money. It, it wouldn't be happening. And specifically, when we mean a plan, we're talking about a document with images, cost estimates, some kind of map, a, enough information that a funder can look at it and be like, I think I understand what you're doing. It looks like a good idea. And I feel comfortable giving you some funds. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 102 is part three of a four-part series where we highlight the Brandon Lee Smith Outdoor Economic Development Collaborative at the West Virginia University. Part three features the infamous Rich Edwards, an absolute trail wizard who filled this conversation with an insane amount of knowledge. Rich's role at the Brandon Lee Smith Outdoor Economic Development Collaborative is the Outdoor Recreation Infrastructure Coordinator. If you are a trail builder or trail lover, you may want to consider a move to the center of Appalachia. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all of the sharing, commenting, and taking of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Rich Edwards. Here we are today on Trail Effect. This is part three of the uh, Brad and Elise Smith Outdoor Economic Development Collaborative series that we put together here and. We have Rich Edwards. Rich Edwards is the Outdoor Recreation Infrastructure Coordinator at West Virginia University, which is part of the Brad and Elise Smith Outdoor Economic Development Collaborative. How's it going today, Rich? Pretty good. Enjoying a beautiful autumn day. Well, here in West Virginia, it's coming to an end here in Wisconsin pretty quick. We got 60s today, but it's going to be no more than 30s for like the next, I don't know, two months. So it looks like uh, it looks like our beautiful autumn is going to come to an end tomorrow with a day of rain and then cold weather afterwards. So, well, prior to you coming to the West Virginia University, you spent 21 years at IMBA, and you've been in your position now for pro- approximately two years, um, about a year and a half. Come March, it'll be two years. So, with that, you've already got an award, the winner of the Staff Award and the Excellence in Community Engagements Awards, or something along those lines, right? Yep. I like collaborative projects. I like when a lot of people get involved. And I believe that award resulted from uh, getting the community involved and doing volunteer work on the trails. We've had a mix of uh, student volunteers, community organizations, um, Mamba. I want to give a shout out to them. That's the Morgantown Area Mountain Bike Association. And they've been a, a huge help providing technical assistance, not just on the trails that we've been working on on the campus, but on trails throughout the community. Because this is a 
The work that we do at the OEDC is much larger than just the work for WVU. WVU is a land-grant institution, so we have a duty to provide and help lift the entire state up with the work that we do. So uh, much like working for IMBA, it wasn't about the trail we were building. It was about what the impact that was in the larger mountain bike community and the mountain bike ecosystem. The same here with WVU, very similar. It's, it's not about the trail we're building right now. It's about what impact that trail will have on the state and the people that live here and what trails are those trails. The trail that we're doing right now, if all we do is that trail, it's not a success. If that trail opens doors, unlocks funding, inspires other people, and leads to 20 more miles of trail, then that trail is a success. If that trail leads to a bunch of people getting on bikes and riding, and I hear the stories that I hear right now of uh, folks that became mountain bikers because of trails that were built 10 or 12 years ago, like some of the first uh, sustainable trails or contour or well-designed planned trails that were built in West Virginia, I'm shocked at how many people I work with now as advocates or civic leaders, or city engineers who learned to ride on those trails that we had a role in a decade ago or over a decade ago, and the impact that had, that it unlocked the woods and riding to a bunch of people who uh, you know, weren't riders before and now are passionate advocates for it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible story that we really like to highlight through this show. And I'm really happy to have you on the show. You know, when I started this journey of, a, of the podcast, it was, you were definitely on my short list of professionals in the industry that I wanted to get on the show. And here we are now. So that's pretty awesome. But let's get into your backstory and kind of what, you know, we've, we've mentioned that you work for IMBA, but what, what led you to this role of the Outdoor Recreation Infrastructure Coordinator at the West Virginia University? I had the great opportunity to start working for IMBA at a time in the trail industry when there was a huge amount of opportunity. There still is a huge amount of opportunity, but things were very much being developed and figured out. It was. Uh, I don't think I set out to have a career doing trails. Yeah, I was working for Elk River Touring. And uh, we'd had uh, um, Kurt Lohite come to a trail care crew visit. One of the original IMBA trail care, before trail care crew, um, one of the original IMBA trail specialists. And Kurt told us some things that we frankly thought were crazy in West Virginia. You know, you want to dig a hole in the side of the ground, a one-sided ditch, that's just going to get wet and muddy. You're crazy. And the next year, Joey and Kathy, Imba Trail Care Crew, came by, did a trail building school. And we built 50, 60 feet of trail. It was incredibly hard work, benching by hand. And over the summer, that trail just got firmer and drier and better and faster. And everything else stayed wet and kind of mucky. I was like, these folks may have something. And uh, applied for Trail Care Crew, started with that. And then working with Joey, you know, the idea of like, hey, folks really want this. We went to the, uh, some of the UK trail centers. And saw what was possible when you gave mountain bikers a bunch of resources and put that passion for trails together with resources in the landscape and what you could do without just being restricted to what you got for free as volunteers. And uh, that was the, uh, the impetus for starting Trail Solutions, that there was more demand, more, more interest. People wanted more knowledge. They wanted more ability and uh, worked for Trail Solutions for a bunch of years as a builder, as a project manager, designer educating when we had the opportunity and uh, eventually ended up for whatever good or bad reason as director of trail of the construction arm for trail solutions, which is just a kind of a testimony that if you do what you like to do a lot long enough, eventually someone will figure out how you don't get to do that and instead get to tell other people how to do it. And you end up doing the fun, not doing the fun stuff any longer because 
building trail and doing the trail design and doing the rock work was the stuff that was always the most fun. Managing the projects while there was a much bigger impact out of that and you got more satisfaction from it wasn't nearly as much fun. So yeah, after working for Amba for a long time, I wanted to do something more than just mountain biking. And that was part of it. Wanted to work on other trails, hiking trails, learn more about um, how rail trails work and paved trails work, and not just to be involved in developing trails, but really to be involved in developing communities using trails as a tool. And the other part about this was spending a lot of time, putting a lot of passion and energy into trails that in a lot of cases, I was pretty sure I would never get to see again in my life. It was really unlikely that I would get back there. I've been lucky enough to get back to some of the projects, but a lot of them, it's, it's, you know, they're states away. It was to the point where uh, when we started working for Trail Solutions, we drove a few hours or a day. And near the end, a lot of the projects we were doing were multiple states away, long drives. You weren't flying. You weren't going home for the weekend. You were away from your family for longer. And uh, I didn't feel like I, I, I stayed with IMBA because I felt an obligation to the Trail Solutions program and to making that work um, and to the partners we developed and worked really hard the last couple of years I was there to develop folks who could come in and take over that role and run with it. And once we had those folks on the team, it became obvious that I had to get out of there because I was a barrier to them continuing to develop. And what I really didn't want to have happen was to help develop folks and then not give them the opportunity to continue to grow and watch them leave. So saw the opportunity of West Virginia University pop up and was like, here's a place I can continue doing similar work, but be focused on a single state, see the impact. And West Virginia has always been near and dear to my heart since I've been on a bike. We uh, worked at City Bikes in DC and we'd hear these tales of 24 hours of Canaan. And uh, when my wife and I, Jen, when we rode across country, we got married at Blackwater Falls in West Virginia, right before the 24 hours of Canaan in 97. And we'd spent, we rode across bikes across country and we found that the best two months out of the whole time trying to ride off-road east to west was in the Virginia and the West Virginia mountains. Like once we crossed the Ohio River, it just wasn't as good as it had been in Virginia and West Virginia. Ended up working after that, going back and working for Gil and Mary at Elk River Touring. Just fell in love with the state. And knew when I left Elk River, I was thinking I'd probably never live in this pretty place again. And uh, 21 years later, get the opportunity to return to West Virginia and give back to some of the, give some love back to that state that, you know, set me on a, set me on a path that I've really enjoyed. That's a pretty awesome story. Is that kind of what I was supposed to say? Yeah, that's exactly what you're supposed to say. That's a, a well, I, it's, it's more than I thought you'd say because you, you interwove the fact that you had a sincere appreciation and, and have a sincere appreciation for that state and for that region for more than just trails and communities, but also family and, and what you found there, right? It's a, it's a beautiful state. There's lots of hidden pockets in it and lots of gems. I doubt in the years that I have left in my life that I'll get to see all the potential nooks and crannies of West Virginia. It, it's uh what's the joke? If we put an iron to the state and flattened it, it'd be bigger than Texas. It's uh, <laughs> the western part of the state's an average forty percent side slope. Average. Sounds like, sounds like some pretty incredible trail building uh, terrain. There's we have such good opportunity for trails, landscapes and footprints for trails. We have no shortage of. Uh, I've never been in a situation where. I've been okay with someone like, yeah, that 5,000 acres, yeah, we're probably not interested in it. 
Or you want us to look at that 30,000 acres? Can we just pick 10,000 acres? In the past, we've always been like, we'll take everything possible. And here it's very much been like, we probably have more land that people are interested in putting trails on than we have the resources available to do that. We still have resources for thousands of miles of new trail and space for that, but it's definitely uh, focusing in on where those trails are going to have the most impact and the most long-term benefit for communities. Because a lot of our trails um, in West Virginia, a lot of our open space, especially the federal open space, is in the eastern part of the state. The majority of our population lives in the western part of the state and lives near the rivers and on the borders. So we can have great backcountry and small mountain towns, the Mon Forest towns in the eastern part of the state um, that are going to provide that really iconic, you're living in a small town, you'll have trails out the back door of the town, you've got a river to fish in or boat in right there in town because all the towns are on rivers. We can have several of those iconic mountain towns, but the majority of people live along the Ohio River or up on the northern border in Morgantown. And it's having trails throughout those communities. We're not just in Morgantown, but throughout the whole state where people have easy access to trails of a variety of different difficulty levels and different types. So this is both about replenishing our population because we've lost a lot of population over the last 50 years, bringing people back to the state, but also about making sure that the folks who've been here in the state for generations, they have the opportunity to get outside and enjoy the outdoors. Because we've done this kind of horrible thing over the past few decades. We motorized everything. And folks who a generation ago, where they lived in the country or in a small town, they would have had immediate access to a bunch of rural area. They now are on a road where it's almost crazy to think about riding or walking your bike on that road. And suddenly they're trapped and they have to drive somewhere. Well, owning a car, operating a vehicle, all of that comes with a higher economic cost especially if everybody in the family needs to have a vehicle to go everywhere. And that makes it much more challenging. And then you're driving a car to work and you're sitting at work, you're sitting in the car or in the truck, you're sitting when you're back home. And this means getting fit enough to be on trails and enjoy them becomes much more challenging. We need to give folks those opportunities to go for a walk, to go for a ride immediately in their community. And we luckily enough, a lot of these communities are old mine towns or timber towns they are. They have a small, dense core that could totally become a very walkable community, and they're surrounded by forested hills, sometimes in public land, sometimes in private land, and using a variety of different mechanisms, whether it's public land or whether it's using some of the trail authorities to get better access to private land and develop public trail systems on private land. We can go ahead and make sure those folks have access where they don't have to get in a car to get on a trail out of their town. Yeah, that's a Perfect segue into what exactly your role is with the Brad and Elise Smith Outdoor Economic Development Collaborative, you know, and let's kind of explain what, what you were brought on for and what that is going to do for everything that you just talked about. My role is to, um, the big picture in the outdoor economy side of the OEDC is to ignite the outdoor recreation economy through West Virginia. My role is to help facilitating, creating the infrastructure or enhancing the existing infrastructure that's going to do that. So we do this through three different ways. I provide in, in certain situations on WVU's campus and in certain specific projects, we get very operational. We're hands-on, we're involved in the design, we're involved in the construction, we're putting our resources directly into that, we're helping build the trails, but we can't do a lot of that. And if that's all we did, we wouldn't have that big an impact. 
because we'd be focused on a fairly small area because those are very capacity intensive support mechanisms. The majority of the state and how we help make things work throughout the state is by providing technical assistance to community partners throughout the state. And this is very much where we teach people and assist people with fishing. We want to be very clear that we're not going to come into a community and do things for that community. We're going to help that community. If we get invited into that community, we are glad to come in and help them figure out how they can make trails happen. What are the best areas for trails? What are some of the funding sources they can apply? Matching up the work they're doing with the right kind of funding source. Help them with writing RFQs or RFPs to get planners or designers to get builders, helping them with writing grants to get the grant funding. This is the way that we can ignite the whole state. And this is very similar to IMBA's, um, how IMBA would help folks with the grassroots. If we can teach 100 people to do something, that's going to have so much more impact than us just going out and building one of those things. So the goal here is to build capacity within our communities and to inspire. And we do this we see winning with the technical support winning in a couple of different ways. Whether we're actually directly involved in a project, sometimes we just have a couple of phone calls with a team. There might be a really high functioning team and they just need some advice about like which they should do first or who they should contact for support. And we'll provide that information. Sometimes we'll actually sit there with them to write the RFQ and be there with the award meetings. Make sure that they're doing all the work, that they're the front folks, but that we're making sure that they have a um, they have good advice to make good choices. The third way that we help, so first was direct operational, second was uh, technical support, and then the third is through education. And we do education at a couple of different levels. As the university, we're offering a sustainable trails certificate, both for graduate and undergraduate, that's part of our landscape architecture program and our uh, parks, recreation, tourism program. And that's aimed at uh, where a lot of other entities are focused on teaching people technical and vocational skills, how to build trail. What we're teaching is trail planning and management. It's aimed at future land managers. It's aimed at landscape architects. And a lot of it is aimed at letting those folks know that there's a whole thriving industry of trail designers, planners, and builders who are out there that they can tap into. Because our industry, the trail, natural service trails industry, is a little bit hidden. Folks, and it's, it's definitely a knee-jerk reaction to like, oh, you need an LA or you need an architecture and engineering firm to do that. It's like, well, yes, you could use those, but we need to make sure that they have the natural surface trails experience and chops in there. And so part of what we're doing with the, uh, the Davis College Sustainable Trails Certificate is making sure that the folks who come out of that who have that certificate are aware of what some of the options are and some of the basic guidelines around natural surface trails. And then the other, other education we're doing is uh, accelerating community trail workshops, which uh, um, this is all about teaching communities how to do the trail development, trail planning, and not just trails, but other outdoor recreation, climbing, water access, how to analyze what they have, how to determine what's going to benefit specifically their community in terms of where they want their community to grow or how they want their community to grow. Some folks are looking for retention for certain industries. Some folks want to keep, you know, they, uh, they want to be a tourism destination. Those may be two slightly different things. The other education we're doing is actual hands-on workshops. Very similar to the old trail care crew workshops. We've got uh, a mobile trails workshop, a truck and trailer full of hand tools in the Canicom, where we can go around and teach folks how to do rock work, how to do bench cutting. Some of the same skills that we're seeing that we thought when the trail care crew was going on, I think we failed to grasp the impact the trail care crew was having. 
in terms of constantly seeding basic trail design and construction knowledge throughout the mountain bike community. And we're seeing the impact now that the trail care crew program has been defunct for close eight years now. We're seeing that knowledge be lost in the mountain bike community. It, it's not there. It's not, it's not a baseline anymore. And as part of our like grassroots empowerment program in West Virginia, we have lots of people who want to make trail happen. We have lots of people making trail happen. Well, we want to give them the opportunity to build the best trail possible. Not everybody needs to stub their toe 10 times to figure things out. If we can give them a little bit of help up with the learning curve and much like, you know, people getting instruction on how to ride bikes rather than just crashing a bunch to figure out how to keep the bike upright. So that's uh, and one of the techniques that makes a lot of sense in West Virginia is teaching people basic rock armoring. We're a wet state, we're a steep state, and we're a rocky state. Every trail system has mud holes. And we've seen this impact working for IMBA, where like we teach a community a certain rock skill, come back five years later, and you'd see awesome examples of that rock skill applied all through the trail system. Everyone's getting a better ride because of it. Well, that's one of the things working on here is teaching those skills and spreading that knowledge throughout the, the whole trail building community throughout the state. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I know in lacrosse where I live, I attended it for sure two of the three times that Imba Trail Care Crew came, you know, here in the, in the early to mid 2000s. And it, it definitely, well, obviously we're here talking today and I don't know if I would have gone on that, on this path we're on. Right. And so that is definitely a thing that really helped mobilize the trail community in terms of like actual trail knowledge during that era. And we definitely lure them in with talking about trail construction because everybody's interested in that. But be sure that like as part of that process, we're also teaching people how to interact with folks, how to collaborate, how it's better. That Even if you might disagree with somebody about trails, well, if you both want to have trails, you're allies. Even if you think their trails are really silly and you don't want to ride on them, that's okay. Not everybody has to like everybody else's trails. But as folks who are developing trails and outdoor recreation, we're much better collaborating and working as allies. We don't have to share every trail. We don't have to be, and you know, every group doesn't have to be involved with every other group and all the projects. It's okay to do separate things, but wouldn't it be nice if it's like, hey, we totally support this other club and the trails they're doing, or we really support the equestrians. So they support us when we go ahead and ask for a mountain bike specific trail. As a group of trail advocates and as a trail industry, we should all be working closely together and supporting each other. The family's too small to like talk bad about each other, which I will say good things now about Tri-State Company and Charlie Dundas. And during the education process, and this may just be a quixotic thing that we can't achieve, but uh, I'm going to convince Charlie that mountain bike trails are okay and sustainable. We can do them in a sustainable fashion. Charlie does great work. Tri-State does awesome work. They are one of the heartbeats of trails in West Virginia and have been doing it for a long time. And uh, we respectively have a small philosophical disagreement about mountain bikes and trails. You do know, Rich, that I got Charlie on in a recorded statement that mountain biking is good and that if it wasn't for the mountain bikers, the trail industry wouldn't have came as far as it is today. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I listen, I listen, I listened to uh, uh, Charlie's podcast and uh, yeah, no, I can't say enough good things about Charlie and uh, what Tri-State has done. I should also call out uh, another trail company that's been doing great things in West Virginia, another local West Virginia native son, and that's going to be Zach Adams with Appalachian Dirt. And there's other folks. One of the other things we're doing with education is we're helping mentor um, professional trail builders. 
We've got new folks in the state who are seeing this opportunity. They want to make it happen. And uh, we see West Virginia is a great place to, if you're going to have a professional trail operation, West Virginia is a great location, lower cost of living than most of the East Coast, but you're half a day's drive from every major multi-pedal area on the East Coast, from Atlanta to Port- to uh, Portland, Maine, half a day's drive from anywhere. So, and those are all great places to be, if you're a commercial trail builder, you want to be working in the high net worth areas. Even better, if you can live in a beautiful place that's lower cost of living, and you can be working in a place that's high cost of living, so you're charging good rates and you're living in a cheaper place. West Virginia, we can very much offer that to people. We've got a couple of new up and coming builders, Sam out of uh, Fayetteville and uh, Tracy Toller's been doing some work for us recently. Yeah, very excited about the the new crop of folks that are coming and the people that we're going to be working with in the future that aren't trail builders now. Well, and aside from that, at least from what I can tell, the East Coast, generally speaking, is ahead of the curve in terms of access and creative ways to get access. And so that's a huge part of the puzzle there, too. I want to, um, I'd throw the, I'd throw the, as long as you're including the Midwest in that, I would say, uh, the, and, and the, really, there was a huge surge in the Southeast in the past two decades, really noticeable about 15 years ago. And part of this was that uh, New England, most of your public space had been public space for over 100 years, already had trails on it. Out West, very similar. In the Sun Belt, in the Southeast, you had a lot of states and counties and urban areas where all the outdoor recreation happened on private land because those were all rural areas and they boomed post-war. And in the 90s, there was a huge amount of open space acquisition going on that didn't have any trails on it. So in the Southeast, it was very common to be like, oh, here's 500 acres that has no trails. Here's 2,000 acres that has no trails on it. What do you want to put there? You would never get 2,000 acres unless you were in Northern Maine in New England that just came onto the market and said, hey, there's no trails here. What do you want to put on there? There's no pre-existing expectation of use, or there's no hiking trails that grandpa built, you know, or great, great, great grandpa built. So it made development of new extensive modern trail systems with modern design principles. It really reduced the barrier for that. That's one of the reasons I think that the the East and specifically the Southeast kind of is viewed that way is we had a great opportunity because there wasn't that preconception. For one of the same reasons that uh, a very similar reason why the BLM so progressive on mountain bike trails, because they didn't have a legacy of trails already and a certain way of doing things. They were figuring it out as they were getting into recreation. So very open to new ideas and no long bureaucratic tale of this is how we've been doing it for the past 50 years and resistance to change, which is a, Made made the, the Forest Service is our largest provider of trails across the country, but they've also been doing it for the longest time. So they have the greatest challenge with any kind of institutional lag um, or resistance to doing something differently. And they also have the largest amount of legacy infrastructure that needs repair. And that's uh, that's always a challenge. The older your company gets, the older your organization gets, the more likely you have more infrastructure liability that needs to be constantly maintained or updated. And that makes your budget constraints that much more difficult. If you're starting brand new, you don't have no maintenance requirements. It's easy to put all your money into capital stuff and build new cool things. But if you've got an enormous maintenance backlog, it's much harder to get that funding for new capital stuff. Yeah. New cool things that potentially last longer from you know advances that we've been able to see in the design and construction of trails. 
definitely one of the things we look at in West Virginia in terms of the community development, being very careful about not encouraging people to build the newest, coolest, latest, greatest thing, but instead to build what their community needs and what their community can support and what's going to be, it's not going to do us any good five years from now to have failed trail systems. We want to make sure that we're being realistic and that we're developing the communities and the community's ability to support the trails along with developing the trails. That's a perfect segue into the next topic that I have, which is the proof of concept or first phase of the Western Woods trail system that I believe you guys recently did in Morgantown. Yeah. So we, uh, we did a demonstration project, just a couple of miles, nothing too fancy, but in the context of the area, a really big deal. We had some recently purpose-built trail in Morgantown over in Westover done by Appalachian Dirt. We didn't have anything in campus and we didn't have a, um, any kind of flow trail or gravity trail. And we didn't have any trail that had been specifically built to be shared use. So a lot of our shared use trails are just organically developed, whether by hikers or mountain bikers or deer. And as you can imagine, those organically developed trails weren't, there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into how people were going to use them. There was just a bit of like, I want a trail here and I need something to ride or hike on, or I just need to get further in the woods. So they weren't well designed for shared use. And because of that, they generate a bunch of visitor conflict because there's no consideration for sight lines or how people are going to interact or that kind of stuff. And so a lot of our, the idea that you can share trails successfully is a fairly foreign concept here. Like this is the, this is an argument that we had 20 years ago in a lot of the, a lot of the different places in the States. And there's definitely the, 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 the basic, if you talk to someone who uses trails around here nowadays, the average person, they'll be like, really? Hikers and bikers in the same trail? That's okay. And so trying to break down that mental attitude by developing trails that are well thought out, have good sight lines, paying attention to the design speeds, and are working well for hikers, dog walkers, and mountain bikers on the same trail. So that's one, that was one of the West Run 1 West Run demonstration project goals, was to build a purpose-built shared-use trail to be successful for different modalities, not just shared-use in name only. The other one was to build a bit of a gravity trail. So Imba Trail Solutions helped us with the gravity trail. Appalachian Dirt did the cross-country trail, the shared-use one. And uh, we held them in a uh, early release beta testing stage for about eight months where they were open to WVU employees and the local mountain bike club to get good feedback on wet areas and maintenance and figure things out in the signage. And then we officially opened them up this fall. And uh, the response has been enormous. We've already had this, already have to consider renegotiating our parking lease to give us more parking area. There's a huge amount of demand where, uh, I think yesterday, during the time I was out there doing a trail inspection, I saw 100 people, including like local cross-country running teams, dog walkers, mountain bikers. Today, I'm fairly sure I saw a group of folks out who uh, um, very much looked like a corporate lunch retreat, all very nicely dressed, looked like they just gone for a nice lunchtime hike. And that is, uh, in terms of demonstration, it worked really well at our grand opening. We had deans of colleges. We had the university president there. We had different representatives from the institution there. And very much the message from everybody was, this is a good thing. We need to do more of this. How can we do more of this faster? And uh, we've got approved to put um, 10 miles on the ground next year, both approval and funding to do that. And that's uh, going to happen across three different sites. 
Um, and we're also going to start connecting some of the sites we're working on to create larger trail systems just by building bridges or connector trails. The other... Uh, that brings me to the next topic. Oh, you got more. Yeah, I was just going to say we use that demonstration project as an opportunity to help train and develop the capacity of the local mountain bike club and the local volunteers. So now we've got a strong cadre of people who know how to do some basic rock armoring. We're doing a trail. We're doing um, an additional section. We had an opportunity to do a small half-mile skills loop or a kids loop. We identified one of our biggest gaps was that uh, the initial demonstration project was on some steeper side slope. A lot of it was. Didn't really work as well for kids. And uh, working with the Youth Cycling Coalition, these are 10 different youth cycling programs um, that have all got setting up a chapter in Morgantown as their pilot. And the ones for the smallest ones, Trips for Kids and Little Bellas, aiming at kids six years to 12 years old, boys and girls, they did not have a good place to do an event. And so we realized we had a piece of property that had mellower side slopes. And so we prioritized that as the next build. So we've just put in a half mile loop there with a bunch of alternate lines, somewhat styled off of the All-American Trail in Bentonville. But the idea is a super friendly trail that the place where you can bring your friend that doesn't ride or your relative that doesn't ride or your six-year-old and they can have a successful successful outing on a bike and they're going to want to go ahead and do it the next time. And talk about that in terms of stone pitching is there was a section that needed to be stone pitched. And all I really had to do was say stone pitching and write stone pitching on a flag and walked out there yesterday and saw an awesome peach of stone pitching. So, uh, Megan, if you're listening, thank you. That is awesome. So you can you minimal instruction, but exact, but the, but the people you're instructing know exactly what you're, what you want to accomplish. That's it's good much leadership. like a take on like landscape management where you're not planning everything or pruning everything, but you're making sure you've got the right species in the right area. And it's just happening because the right things are in the right place. Yeah, for sure. And that brings me to the next topic, which was brought up by Andy Williamson which is the more broad plan called the 100-mile vision or a trail within a mile of every household. We have the opportunity, based on the planning work that IMBA has done on city property and WVU property, that we have the opportunity to at least have 100 miles of trail in the community open to bikes, possibly more, possibly a good bit more, and that that would enable us to have a trail within 15 minutes every person in in, in town. And this is one of the things that became obvious during the planning process. And my, uh, I started the planning process while working for IMBA. I was involved in it working for IMBA, though Steve Kasachek was definitely leading that. And uh, a great example of mentoring somebody and then they're, them growing to the point where then you're assisting them with projects, not mentoring them at that point. And one of the things that we identified was that in Morgantown, our bike pet infrastructure isn't that good in terms of connectivity. And when we had started, when IMBA started with the TAG grant planning process, it was focused on mountain biking opportunities specifically and all about recreation. And we quickly realized that through that planning process, we could actually improve the connectivity and transportation effectiveness and that adjusted it a bit. So there was more improved surface trails in there that would be functional as recreational trails, but at the same time also provide transportation opportunities. So fun to ride, good connector, good core trail, but also is the trail you can use to get from your townhouse complex to the restaurants or the students could use to get to class. Taking the shred the school thing just a little bit further and pushing the idea that your recreational fun trails, if you modify the design just a little bit, can also be functional transportation trails. That you could ride to work 
on a rip and piece of single track that also happened to be heavily surfaced or done in such a way that it's rideable when it's wet or when it's damp and it's still stable. One of the things that actually haven't haven't came out of this series yet, which I kind of am surprised that I didn't think of this earlier, but to put this into context, what's the size of Morgantown? You want population or you want to? Well, just like kind of compare it so people, so listeners can kind of understand what, you know, what the scope and scale of what you're talking about really is. You're talking about a metropolitan area that's a hundred thousand, a little more. You've got a large university. In terms of mileage, you're talking about an area that's, uh, again, mileage is not a great way to measure stuff in West Virginia. Because it goes up and down. There's a, and the planning work was just on one side of the river, but uh, 10 miles by five miles. So it's a larger, I mean, it's not a, it's not a huge community, but it's, you have some significant challenges to connect everything. And that was really what I was trying to. We, we have places where there's a rail trail that you could drive a golf ball to from the neighborhood above it. And there's no real way that you can get to that rail trail with a child on a bike or on foot without a car. 70 feet of elevation gain and drop, four-lane highway. I mean, literally, you could hit a golf ball from your backyard and put it on the trail. But you could see the trail, but you really can't get there unless you're super brave and willing to mix it up with some heavy traffic. And there's a lot of places like that where because of steep slopes, because of topography, um, on a map, they look right next to each other. And you get out there in the field and you look at it and you're like, oh, it's down there. I'm I'm looking at the top of a four-story building. Complete side note, how many golf balls have you found in the middle of nowhere while you're planning trails? (laughs) Because that seems to be something we always find. Golf balls are really... They're really pretty common. There is, I am amazed. There's definitely some in the site we're on now. And I'm, I'm, I've been trying to figure out like where somebody was standing when they were chipping them. We found a ton of golf balls on the, on the project that you came and helped plan here in lacrosse too. And that would maybe be a little bit easier to figure out, but they're just everywhere. There's a, uh, yeah, yeah. People definitely, uh, it was, it was one one golf course we worked in, in Alabama and that definitely, the golf ball density helped us with Determining the final trail alignment. Because <laughs> there it was like, those were legitimate slices. So where the golf balls were really dense in the ground, it was like, yeah, we don't want to put the trail here. This, this, is, this, is, this is the slice zone. Yeah, no kidding. It brings a whole new uh, reason for needing to wear a helmet while riding, right? What was the, uh, there was a crystal in Milwaukee. There was a trail system that was partially on top of like an old fill slope, an old landfill slope. And one of those trails went right behind the back of the driving range field. I wonder if that's what's now called the rock. Cause there's a complex that has changed names and changed hands. I wonder if that's the place. We went there. Uh, it was, that was a long time ago. I was, I was on trail care crew, but there was definitely a, uh, it was uh, it was a completely manufactured hill. Yeah. Yeah. That might be what's now referred to as the rock, which is an urban ski area and other, a bunch of other stuff going on there too. Yeah, they were trying to do a ski. I think they were talking about trying to do a ski area. Yeah, but it was, uh, yeah, it was very much a man-made little, I wouldn't call it a mountain, but definitely a, for a man-made hill, it was a pretty good-sized man-made hill. Let's roll into current shovel-ready projects, because that's another topic that Andy brought up to me to ask you about. And this doesn't even, this could be statewide. You know, we're not, we, we're, we can yeah. leave the, the Morgantown area and go statewide with current shovel-ready projects. So shovel-ready. I'm going to use the broad definition of shovel ready. Say that means implementation within two within a year or completion within a couple of years. 
Let's start with the ones that are funded. We've uh, so in Fayetteville, we have two projects, one in Needles Eye Park in Oak Hill and one at Fayetteville Town Park. Those received a million and a half dollars with the earmark funding last year. As a testimony to all these projects I'm going to list had its plan done, and that was used to get the funding. The earmark for the Fayetteville Trails, number the Fayette Trail Coalition, they uh, the earmark was submitted before the plans were finished. Applied Trails Research did their planning work. They were at about 50% stage with the plans, and they were already being used to get the earmark. And uh, New River Gorge Development Authority has stepped in to help with the uh, um, the financing and the earmark distribution, but really nice community partnership there. So those are going in, uh, hopefully going out to bid in the next, by the spring, and then uh, at least one of those projects going in next year, possibly both of them. We're going through compliance right now with those. So they're they're funded. You could call them shovel ready, depending upon how long your lens is. Down in Monton, one of the Mon Forest towns uh, at the southern edge or down the southern part of the Monongahill Forest. This is a uh, part of the Snowshoe Highlands area. But this is uh, Marlington's a little bit lower than Snowshoe. So if folks are familiar with the Snowshoe terrain and the Pocahontas terrain, it's all like remnant boreal forest, higher elevation. The stuff in Marlington looks more like Stokesville, Virginia. Hardwood slopes less spruce. And that's uh, 27 miles um, designed by Embetrail Solutions that received uh, 27 miles received. They did a CADAX categorical exclusion for that. So one of the new CADAXs applied to that. And uh, that was awarded in January. That was confirmed in January. The decision was made and funding was officially awarded a couple of weeks ago, about $1.8 million for 27 miles of construction there. Before we move on, talk, just kind of define what a categorical, categorical exclusion is for those that may not be familiar with that. Uh, I hope I don't get myself in trouble with this. There's going to be someone listening to this that knows the NEPA process much better than me is going to cringe at how I describe this. It'll get us to what we're close to what we're. If anybody who listens to this is like, hey, you need a better description, feel free to send it to me um, or educate me on this. So any kind of federal project, federal money, federal land, you have to go through a National Environmental Policy Act process. To make sure you're not going to have any negative impacts to ar- historical, archaeological, um, or biological resources, and uh, generally in the past, those are uh, um, you go through a process where they do the review, and uh, if they uh, um, you're not going to have any impact after that, you get what they call a FONSI, finding of no significant impact. If they determine that you're going to do an impact and you got to figure out how much of it is, then you have to do an EA, an impact, environmental impact statement or uh, environmental assessment. And if you're really going to mess stuff up and probably have to like do something to mitigate it, you do a, um, an EIS, environmental impact statement. So generally for trails, it's almost always been FONSIs or EAs. If we were working on park service land to get mountain bikes on trails, they had to do a special rule that would trigger the EA process as well. The categorical exclusion is basically they look at the existing impacts on the landscape and the existing uses of the landscape, and they say, this trail is not going to do anything different than it is. So it's categorically excluded from having to do a full big process and send out an archaeologist to do test pits along all the trails. That's good. That's I actually have another side note. I actually have furthering categorical, category, I can't even say the word, categorical exclusion training next week at WizDOT. <laughs> That's it. This, um, the CADAX has been promoted for use by the federal agencies to reduce some of the overhead with doing NEPA compliance. And uh, if you do too heavy-handed compliance when you don't need to, you can give the whole compliance regime a bad rap. 
And then you have people trying to avoid the compliance thing. But there are a lot of situations where stuff should be analyzed and reviewed. So the CADEX is a really good way of allowing people to play ball with the system, but not necessarily spend a bunch of resources in places where it's not going to really protect much. And that's uh, it was used at the Bailey system. That's how the Bailey system was approved. It was nice to see it at the Marlington one. But yeah, we're looking at 27 miles of uh, two to three mile long, 18 inch wide descents in the next three years down there. And that's really going to, uh, yeah, if anybody wants to call Marlington their new home, they should probably have like five years where there's still housing stock available. Well, there's a there's a pro tip from Rich right there for all the listeners. Trying to find a place that isn't expensive, go there. I think the whole I state of West Virginia is getting... going to be a hot spot. And that's going to that's obviously being uncovered through this series of podcasts. They're also looking to get cable internet, which is going to change their game as well. People can work remotely. The uh, What do we have otherwise for other shovel-ready projects? We recently had uh, two EDA grants awarded. Oh, one thing about the Wellington Project. This is one of the... Uh, um, so the different funding sources for each of these projects, one of the things that seems most exciting about what's going on in West Virginia is it's not the same funding stream. We're seeing multiple different funding streams be applied to trail projects, which to me speaks to the robustness of the whole movement and the longevity of it. So the uh, Fayetteville projects were funded through an earmark process, Department of Interior FLAP grants, which are grants for being right next to National Park Service. The Marlington project was funded by an ARC power grant. Now, ARC power grants in the past have funded trail projects, but only when they were a subsidiary of a larger project that the ARC project, the ARC power grant was funding. This is the first time that we know of that it has funded a solely just a trail project. Wow. So pressure's on to make sure that one goes really well so that ARC power wants to continue putting money towards trail projects, not just in West Virginia, but through the whole ARC is the Appalachian Regional Commission, so throughout its whole service area. EDA grant money hasn't been used for trails before or for direct recreational infrastructure. And this year, two EDA grants were awarded in West Virginia, one for Kakapin State Park and then one for uh, um, Milan Park. The Kakapin one is for 35 miles of new trail. This is an area where uh, we really have had a grassroots-driven effort to develop trails at Kakapin, led by a, a local advocate, Mark Hoyle. And uh, they've been using RTP funds. They've been raising local money from the county tourism folks to provide funding to that, local donations as well. And uh, they had IMBA do a TAG grant for the uh, entire park. And that TAG grant was used to apply for the EDA grant. The OEDC provided a little bit of cost assistance um, in terms of helping with the cost estimate, making it match up to the EDA forms. And uh, they've received that funding, several million dollars um, that's going to be applied to those three and a half million trips. 35 miles of trail, as well as RTP funds going into the project as well. They just uh, shout out to Capen. They uh, last year through a force account through RTP, um, Inva Trail Solutions and uh, Appalachian Conservation Corps did a great build on the Thunderstruck Trail, which is, uh, if you ride it, is the oldest looking new school trail around. It looks like it was built by the Triple C, but feels like it was built by modern mountain bikers. Got good rhythm, good flow, and a whole lot of rock. And a lot of it was hand-built. Yeah, and there's some media out on that trail. There's a, there's a video out, and we'll link the video for that Thunderstruck trail in the show notes, too, for listeners that may be interested in getting a visual of what Rich is talking about here. Yeah, that there's a three-part video series that doesn't just talk about the trail. 
that talks about the process of how it came to be, how the local community rallied, and the importance that trail is having a really big impact statewide because Kikapin uh, is one of our major state parks. We just spent a lot of money, state parks did, building a new lodge there, upgrading their lodge. And they've noticed that mountain biking events drive people staying in the lodge. At the local, um, one of the reasons that the state was willing to help apply for the EDA grant was they saw the impact of the enduro races at Kikapin and they saw the impact of the NICA events. Just, you know, roads, park full of kids and parents on bikes during the NICA events. And uh, state park officials seeing that and realizing that. And that definitely was recognized in Charleston that, hey, um, trails and mountain biking are ways that we can make our state parks more successful. Because we, uh, in West Virginia, state parks are open to everybody. There's no, we do not charge entrance fees. Mountaineers shall be free. It's the state motto. Um, we do not charge access to our state parks. It's the only way we can monetize our state parks is through lodging. And in order to get people to stay overnight, we need to have a certain amount of recreational opportunity to get them to want to stay for that next day. Trails help drive that, especially in the shoulder seasons. For the geography aspect of this, that's pretty close to Charleston, West Virginia? Actually, Kikapin's not. Kikapin's okay. closer to Washington, D.C. than Charleston. Okay. Kikapin's out in the eastern panhandle, right near, uh, close to Fredericksburg. Okay. Maryland. Yeah, you you referenced Charleston. That's the only reason why I asked that. Oh, I, I mentioned Charleston because Charleston is where the state legislature is. Yes. So when I make the reference about decisions made in Charleston, that's a reference to the Capitol dump and the governor. Got it. Mr. Mr. Justice has been a big supporter of trails, but it's definitely uh, when we talk about the decisions being made and the heads of the state offices, most of them need to be in Charleston. That's a very good fact to point out here. That's, that's, that's uh, when we talk about Charleston, that's speaking to power, speaking to the decision makers. And when we do things in the state, we know that we need to be represented there. There's also a large portion of our population that lives there. Yeah. Yeah. When you have the state capital, you got people there. So uh, the other part about this, the other uh, EDA grant is Milan Park. In, uh, and this is uh, in Morgantown. This is a, um, a nonprofit driven park that does cooperative stuff with a WVU, with the county school district um, to provide facilities that other entities wouldn't be able to provide on their own. As part of the Youth Cycling Coalition initiative, it was identified the need for a BMX track. So the Milan Project is a full hard surface BMX track, potentially the first in the country, full hard surface pump track, intentionally UCI competition design, so competition style pump track, and then hard surface skills trail, and then a hard surface jump flow line uh, or park similar to the rail yard in Bentonville. All of it, we're pushing for hard surface, one, because it rains a lot here, two, in terms of that longevity and community ability and ability to support stuff, we want to make sure we make this as low maintenance for the next decade as possible. So while we know that hard surface stuff isn't zero maintenance, in fact, the maintenance is possibly as expensive when it comes down to doing it, but your maintenance intervals are spread apart much more. And we don't need to have a bunch of people on a park staff who can constantly groom a BMX truck. And so that's uh, it's another EDA grant that was awarded. And we're hoping to see the design on that finished in the next six to eight months and construction start sometime next year. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff going on there. Have we, have we missed any shovel ready projects? Um, yeah, there's a white park Southside trail at white park is due to go out to bid, um, this spring. That's an interesting one is the trails are being done as part of a voluntary remediation program for the EPA. 
Um, White Park's an old tank farm and it's got some contaminated soils. So rather than just digging up all the soils and trucking them out to an incinerator or just knocking down all the trees and burying the soils under a big cap, they've instead chosen to pick a path where the areas that are identified as having contaminated soils will have trails. The trails in those areas will be rebuilt and a sufficient cap put on them and armored to protect people, um, much like Big Marsh Bike Park in Chicago was. And uh, then through creative trail design, fencing, and plantings, we keep people away from those areas that are contaminated. So the trail construction and trail design is the active part of the remediation process. That's an interesting one. That's something that hasn't came up at all yet through this podcast series. And it's something that definitely, and it's, it's just, it's that out of the box thinking that comes to this industry that is just incredible. Others shovel ready. Yeah. Bid package for any builders on the listening in. Um, bid package went out recently for Charleston for Gloria Jones Woodlands. Um, that's for a small three-mile build there that's funded by the city of Charleston. There's an active project that's wrapping up that's uh, Kanawha State Forest that the local mountain bike group there in Charleston helped uh, state forest go, or uh, state parks put out to bid. And that's uh, under construction right now. I think they're planning to wrap up because the season's closing. Wow. The Lewisburg, the White Sulphur Springs Bike Park just finished design. The only reason I would say it's not in the shovel-ready stage is it doesn't have funding awarded for it yet. And I know I'm forgetting there's other projects in Beckley that Corey's been working on that are uh, probably shovel ready as well. But that's, uh, I know I'm forgetting something big. I just can't remember right now. Sorry. That's all right. You've listed a lot of places, which is pretty incredible. I think uh, more than I think any listener would really expect out of one state or even a region for that matter. Did I mention the 100 miles, 10 million thing? No, we haven't gone there yet. And that was, that was also, that was part of Marlington as well though, right? Marlington counts into Marlington, the EDA grants, the ARC grants, those all bundle into that. But basically in the first, uh, about the first 12 months or in a year's period last year, we saw, and these are not projects, we're not taking responsibility for these, but these are projects that we were either involved in or knew about. We watched a hundred miles of trail be officially approved and $10 million worth of funding get to like the 95% award stage within a year. It, it, it was just dumbfounded that like there's that much funding available, that much support and support on all different levels from the highest levels of state government and federal government, all the way down to really grassroots, just the energy about trails and everybody seems to agree trails is a good thing. When someone very high up in the state government turns to you and says, hey, how much would it cost to double the mileage of trail in the state? You know you've got people thinking about the right stuff. You got a, another question to? Uh... Oh yeah, yeah yeah. We're gonna go into planning. Oh, because this is where stuff really gets. I think this is one of the areas that. Well, I hit on it a lot, but I think we can't hit on it enough in terms of like highlighting what planning can do for trails. Because all this stuff that you just talked about is being shovel ready. Like you don't, like you said, you're not at shovel ready when a plan is done. You're at shovel ready when stuff is funded. And you can't get the funding if you don't have the planning. And so we're going to go to the city of Elkins, West Virginia, which, which was recently awarded a $50,000 trail planning grant from, Arc Power, from the Arc Power Initiative. And this is for bike-optimized trail on five properties throughout the county. Let's talk about that and let's talk about trail planning and what, what that really can do and the fact that this is a grant for planning, not a grant for infrastructure building. All of the awards I've talked about, Every one of those wards relied on a trail plan 
that was submitted with the grant application. Without those trail plans, we wouldn't be seeing that money. It wouldn't be happening. And specifically, when we mean a plan, we're talking about a document with images, cost estimates, some kind of map, enough information that a funder can look at it and be like, I think I understand what you're doing. It looks like a good idea. And I feel comfortable giving you some funds and you seem game on enough, you're game on on enough that you're going to be able to spend that stuff well and put something good on the ground. That's and those so a lot of times that we might be using concept level plans or feasibility style plans to get that grant money, but we know that when we go to actual build, we have to go through the design process and get the details figured out. So the plan that we use to get the funding may not probably isn't the design or the bid documents or the information we need to put it out to bid to actually get it built. So what we're uh, in Elkins, there was some assistance to the local community, really game on community, powerful, a lot of different people. They'd already put together their dream team in terms of they had a bunch of different entities that had already come together and say, hey, we want to do outdoor recreation. We have Davis and Elkins College. We have some other properties. We have some city properties. We have different people in the community. And they already had that team together. We helped them analyze some of the properties and then figure out some of the funding sources to apply for. Forest Service is also in that, in that mix as well. And now we're uh, with that grant award, we're assisting with helping write the uh, RFQ to get the planning firms under contract refining exactly which properties would have the design, would have the planning work done on them. And so we're going to have master planning done. So zone and corridor analysis of all those properties, meeting with the property owners, the prime stakeholders, what types of trails need to be developed. And we know they're bike optimized, but what difficulty level, gravity, cross country, skills trail on the campus, are they going to be dual purpose with the cross country running trails? Are there places where we're tying to the existing rail trails? Are there any places where we can have direct connectivity near schools? If we can, then those want to be optimized for kids and towards NICA. So making those decisions during the planning. And then as part of the planning, five to 10 miles of design as well. So that we have at the end of this planning process, we have five to 10 miles still shovel ready. Because shovel ready, in some ways, you want to have the funding, but mostly you want to be able to know that you've got enough planning done that you can get it permitted quickly and you can then go ahead and get it built. And permitting in West Virginia really revolves around stormwater pollution prevention plans. So making sure we've got uh, we've got the documents prepared in the design that can then be used to easily create the SWIP plan to get the permit so that it doesn't become an extra headache down the road. Yeah. And I can tell you firsthand, and you know this because you were part of the project, but when we, and I've talked about this on the show and maybe not to this level, but when we went to, when we were finalizing the planning and the construction documents for the gateway project here in the cross, which you were a part of the funder that came forward, if we would have just given him, you know, a master plan, he wouldn't have funded it, you know, but when we gave him an actual building plan, like a legit design trail system with construction documents that he could see that there was different bed items for different things, such as turns and rock armoring and trail tread. He was a, he was a builder. And so when he saw that stuff, it spoke to him in in a way that he could understand it and that it was something that he knew was going to become real if it was funded. It wasn't just an idea. Right. And so that's where I really want to continue to like hit on how important those are, those plans are, and those real like permitted plans, stuff you can actually take, you know, and, and make shovel ready with this show. 
So I'll go, I'll, I'll geek a little bit then, because it sounds like you, that's, that's where you're pushing me towards. This is easy, because right now we're teaching this in the class. Planning, from our perspective, is how you describe, determine and describe the potential experiences you're going to offer. That's the planning process. And then the design process is how we determine those experiences are going to be offered on that specific site. So the design details, so the, the planning might be like, okay, five miles of beginner trail on this area here, rough cost estimate. These are your next steps. And you've already, you've looked at that and ground truth enough, you know, five, eight, five miles of beginner trail fit there. And you're going to have two miles of gravity. Oh, and we want to have a little paved pump track as well. So in the planning, we've determined like what kind of experiences and they kind of match up to that area. In the design, it's like, okay, so five miles of beginner trail. Flag that corridor, determine what the grades are, determine the measurable specifications, what units you're going to need to build it. Because generally we do this with a, um, a unit price construction, which is uh, a lot like make yourself sandwich kind of thing. You know, you, you uh, we want cheese or you don't want cheese. Well, we got a unit for rock armoring. You can add rock armoring if you want with that unit. And then the unit, unit price thing allows contractors to bid on the price of certain units or services. And then the decision about how many of those units or exactly what's going to be done where can be adjusted in the field, but you've already determined the prices. Where if you were doing a lump sum, you wouldn't have that flexibility. There'd be a lot of incentive on the contractor's thing not to do expensive things that they didn't budget for when they gave you the quote. But if you're doing a unit price, you've got more flexibility and the contractor isn't exposed because they're still getting paid for what they quoted on. Um, there just maybe more tread. Maybe there's more berm turns and less rock armoring, or maybe there's more rock armoring and less tread. Maybe you found you had to have a bridge, and luckily you put a bridge unit in there. We do the same thing with the SWIP stuff. If we know there's going to be uh, certain BMPs that have to be installed for stormwater, we'll list those BMPs as unit prices. So the planning is the general plan, the experience, and that's also usually the sales document for the grant funding and for the permission. The design is all the information necessary so that whoever wants to build it, whether it's local volunteers, whether it's a, a contractor, whether it's agency staff, that they're all working off the same set of things and they would all build the trail that would meet the experience objectives in the plan. That you've got enough detail that when you build a beginner trail, it actually turns out to be a beginner trail when you're done building it. It doesn't have any gap jumps, doesn't have any 50% grade sections, it's not on the top of a cliff. And then if you're building a black diamond trail or a black diamond jump line, it's got the specifications in there necessary so that when you're done with it, it actually is a good black diamond jump line. And so the other part about doing the design is you probably identified in the planning what some of your compliance stuff is going to need to be. You refine that during the design. You ask more questions, figure out more details, what permitting is going to be required, what compliance, because your compliance generally comes from two places. It comes from the regulatory requirements based on the piece of terrain you're on and what jurisdictions have, what, what entities have jurisdiction over that piece of property. And the rest of your compliance generally comes from the funding stream, whose money you're spending and what strings they have attached to spending that money, what requirements they've put on it, whether it's how you bid it, how you pay people, whether you pay them a certain wage, whether you have to do additional environmental compliance based upon that funding. So during the design, if you've already had the grant awarded, you know both of those compliance constraints, the terrain and the funding, and you can make sure that your design documents and your design deliverables help you overcome any obstacles or meet any needs created by the funding and the terrain. And 
Yeah. If you're shovel ready, you've got your units together, you're pretty ready to bid, you're ready to do any compliance that's need to be done if you weren't able to do it proactively beforehand. And you can take funding and you can quickly turn it into completed trail. Along those lines, and this is a topic or a thing that just popped into my head now. So this will be new to you because I didn't give you this topic, but this is something that I've always thought or thought for a long time. And it's something we do in my real role at DOT in Wisconsin is having projects on a shelf ready to go. So when funding sources become available that we didn't maybe know about, like how important is that for organizations or communities to have? Because I could see that as being, especially when like recently when we had all the ARPA funds come out nationwide, like how many projects did you have to have that were technically shovel ready to plug into funding streams that maybe didn't, you didn't even know they were real a year ago. So a couple thoughts on that. Some of your compliance stuff, some of it you want to get ready and have a good idea of what you need to do for the permitting or for the compliance, but not necessarily do it because some of it does go stale. An example would be biological compliance in NEPA. When they change the species of concerns, your old compliance stuff doesn't work because you weren't looking for the right species. So as new species get listed, your old compliance may go out of date. If the terrain or the landscape significantly changes, your old, they may deem your old compliance went stale. So your biological stuff's got a bit of a shelf life, a, a past due date. ARC, ARC stays pretty stable. Some of your other permitting, there may be ongoing regulatory changes that you may need to update to, but you can definitely, you can do a pretty good job in a lot of sites of figuring out what the concerns are. And part of this is just in your design that this is very true working with federal NEPA stuff, that if you can get a couple of clues from the land manager about areas that are likely to be problematic or determine what the species of concerns are and what habitat it, those are located in or what the specific historical resources that are likely to be found on that site and what type of terrains they're going to be found on, you can a lot of times preemptively avoid that stuff to make your compliance really easy to do. So part of this is just being graceful with your design, figuring out what's going to be a concern and staying away from it. But having projects that are very close to shovel ready, and that's why we like getting the SWIP plans together. We might not submit for that permit, but that we'll have a stamped SWIP plan ready to go. So if the funding does come, they can apply for the permit. They've got the SWIP. They're good to, good to start moving dirt. Certain funding streams, we definitely look at shovel ready. There's some stuff that you have two or three years to spend. And your level of shovel readiness doesn't need to be as tight. But if someone's going to give you money and say, you have to spend it in a year, especially when we're talking about trails, trail work's seasonal. If they give you that money in March and they say you have to have it spent in a year, you really have like six months to spend that money because you're probably not going to be doing that much digging over the wintertime. So having a understanding what kind of funding streams you're likely to apply for, the ARPA money is a good example. That was pretty easy to predict that was coming. You could see that eight to 12 months in advance. So that, 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 that funding pipeline was in development and a lot of people were starting to get ready for stuff. And that happened, oh, what was the, the fallout of 2008? There was a big federal thing there. And the smart federal land managers were getting projects ready months in advance. ERA, American yeah. Reinvestment Recovery Act. Yeah, because so we had a lot uh, of DOT stuff that got impacted with that, both positively and we had to like fast track a ton of stuff that just wasn't quite ready. So there's definitely, 
Yeah, so there's definitely, if, if, if when we see large funding streams coming, there's definitely a push to get things ready. Now that earmarks are back on the table, yeah, I would encourage anybody to like be getting stuff as shovel ready as possible. Also, because we have such a, we have such a variety of different grant programs that are available now. It's not just RTP that uh, if your stuff's shovel ready and good to go, your chances of getting funded are that much likely. People are like, oh, they got lucky. No, man, luck favors the prepared. People don't get lucky. When people are like, oh, they were just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, with a plan, with the right documents, they were deliberately in the right place because that was the right place to be. And that's where they got funded. They didn't get lucky. They were smart about it and they were prepared. And that's a good life lesson right there. That's, yeah. What haven't we talked about yet that we need to cover through this show? I think we we went pretty deep on a lot of things here, but I don't want to miss out on anything that might be going on at the West Virginia University that we haven't covered yet, at least on the infrastructure side of things, because we're going to have one more opportunity still with Danny Tully coming on for coming back on for the fourth installment of this series. Danny's going to wrap it up with big picture. So, man, if you want, if, if possible, I'll just this isn't specifically applies to trails. This is just generally like getting things done. Assume the best of people They never. Don't attribute to malice what's best explained by ignorance. And, and ignorance isn't a bad thing. It just means that people don't know certain stuff. It's completely fixable. I see a lot of people, they get angrier, they get a bad head about something, and they don't want to work with people. It's like, assume that people are doing it for the best reasons and that they're good people. There's, very, there's not a lot of people we work with that are really bad, malicious people. Most folks are good people, but there's a lot of infighting in the industry. And people just need to just set that aside. And it's like, yeah, you may not like that person, but they share the same values that you do. You can still work with them. You don't have to go out and be their best buddy. That's okay. You can still work with them. You can still be allies for the same cause. And if we're collaborating, we're going to do that much better. And if we're going to people that really don't know our industry and asking them for funding and support, the last thing that they want to see is a bunch of fractious division within our industry, within our advocacy. We need to like, if we're going to have that, we need to keep that dirty laundry inside and, uh, you know, not be, not be using that as an advertisement. Two people arguing about trails just tells this politician that doesn't know trails, the trails are problem, problematic and they don't want to be involved with them. Yeah. And that's, it, I don't know why it is, but that is, that is kind of the dark side of mountain biking that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but like people like. People go sideways on wheel sizes. People go sideways on head tube angles. People go sideways on suspension. You know, how much suspension travel a bike has. People definitely go sideways on flow trails versus tech trails. And the reality is, is that we're all there for the same reason to do the same thing, right? At the end of the day. There's a lot of room. There's a lot more room for more trail. And there's a lot more room for more riders. It's uh, the, the, the whole like hating on your brother kind of thing. Definitely. Uh, just gets in the way of that success. The other, uh, the other bit of advice for any advocates out there, if you're talking to someone you don't know, or you're just talking and other people are listening, you never know who they are. And you should always assume that there's someone powerful or influential or a funder. There is uh, negative examples of split-second interactions that have created decade-long advocacy issues. You know, someone who was just an entry-level park person who now sits at the highest level of their state parks department and had a negative mountain bike interaction 25 years ago. And that 
as a group of people, as advocates, we have suffered because of that split-second interaction that's stuck in that person's mind. Just because somebody wrote by the wrong way and said the wrong thing to the wrong person. Now, that person who might not have been the wrong person, but they certainly are now. Other situation, you know, I, I had someone do something to me on a trail that I thought was inappropriate. I kept my mouth shut. And uh, not very long later, I ended up going up to a house to do a large fundraiser, to uh, do a presentation for a large fundraiser. And uh, she opened the door to the house. And it's like, you just, you never, you never really know who you're talking to. Could be the governor's aide, could be the senator's wife, could be the senator, you know, could be the president of the organization. And uh, just encourage people to uh, always default to being nice and polite when you're talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. That's some very good Rich Edwards wisdom there to impart on the listeners of the show. That's something that we definitely don't hear enough of and could probably hear in every single episode as a reminder. If you're on a bike or you're building a trail, whether you chose to be or not, you're an ambassador. It's so true. It's so true. And that might even be a bike on a street, not even on a trail. Yep. Yep. Well, before we close this thing out, do you have any thank yous, people you want to recognize for helping you get to where you are? Because it's, it's interesting that, especially the way you started out at the beginning of this podcast, having West Virginia have such a prominent place for you and your wife, and now to be back in that, that whole cycle of getting back to exactly where you, where you were then to where you are now and being able to do what you do, that's a pretty incredible cycle of importance and importance. That's not a word. Awesomeness, we'll call it. I'm going to edit that. Awesomeness. Man, I doubt. Yeah. So many people. Uh, Joey Klein, Gil Willis, Mr. Blumenthal, Scott Lindenberger, Christopher Bernhardt, Christopher Kameyer, Mike Ryder, Tony Boone, all folks who played a pivotal role in the opportunities that we were provided to make trails happen and the information we had. And then, man, I, to West Virginia University, President Gee, Danny Twilley, Greg Corio, folks who took a chance um, and gave me an opportunity to come to the state and do things here. And there's uh, man, there's so many advocates in this state that are doing such great things. Yeah, I I could sit here for 20 minutes and just list off names. There's uh, so many people making good things happen. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very... Uh, the work we do is sometimes hard and frustrating and the hours long. And I find that one of the best things to do is just to talk to people about the successes and get out in the trail and see the smiling faces. And suddenly it's like, oh yeah, we're doing a good thing. It's totally worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. And the picture you just painted about the future of West Virginia in terms of trails and outdoor recreation is, is pretty incredible. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we, we may not have thought of being a thing. And then places like Northern Minnesota, Bentonville, all the, you know, all the places that we're seeing explode now, West Virginia, the whole South, the, well, the whole Southeast part of the country, you know, Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, like South Carolina, it's just incredible. And, and now West Virginia is going to be a part of that as well. Well, and let's, uh, I'll be a little uh, artisan here, West Virginia and the Appalachians. We definitely, Appalachian, Appalachian, whether you're north or south, we can come together on this. From Maine down to Alabama, there is a very consistent, 
terrain, landscape, and I think person type of person who came to ride in these areas who liked riding this stuff 20 years ago. And we see community after community up and down the mountain range making outdoor recreation a focus. And so I think it's uh, West Virginia sits at the heart of that. But uh, I see a, a very common thread throughout the whole Eastern mountain range. Yeah. With that, thank you, Rich, for taking the time to come on the show today and, and being a part of this series. It's the infrastructure side of the things is the stuff that I really geek out, out on the planning, the building, the designing, all that stuff, getting shovels in the ground. Like that's, that's where my heart is. And so to have you on to talk about this for the time we've been able to talk about has been pretty incredible. So thank you for that. Thank you much for the opportunity. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. Our next episode will be the final part of the four-part series featuring West Virginia University and their mission of advancing West Virginia through outdoor recreation via the Brad Lee Smith Outdoor Economic Development Collaborative. Once again, we feature Dr. Danny Twilley, who will be our guest bookending this series. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people that feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>